Hello and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of a person and their absent brother. That's right. No David this week. Uh, he, as he, he, we mentioned on last week's episode, has opted out of this week's discussion of the film. Not a comic, kind of a comic, based on a comic. I did not read the comic. I imagine our spoilers guests did not read the comic. Uh, but <laughs> we will press on nonetheless. This is a bonus episode, so, you know, don't don't expect high value for this one. Uh, we're discussing the 2019 film Radioactive about the life of Marie Curie. It is, of course, directed by our just-concluded uh, topic of discussion, Marjan Satrapi. It's written by Jack Thorne. There's some other people in it as well. But more importantly than any uh, any information about a film is our wonderful guests. I'll start to my top right in this video call screen I'm looking at. Uh, he is one of the hosts of the wonderful Can I Kick It podcast. You might know him from the Private Eye episode of this very podcast. Emilio Diaz has returned. Welcome, Emilio. How are you? Hello, 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 hello. Returning guest, first one on this podcast. I get to claim that when this podcast shoots up straight to the moon, everybody's gonna know the name of Emilio Diaz. Yeah, you'll be like the David Ehrlich of Got the Runs in every respect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, and here comes our second guest. Sorry, uh, sorry. You know him. No, no, no. You know him from the Can I Kick It podcast and the upcoming or maybe recently released new podcast, Bevy of Bevies. Colin Ashley joins us. How are you, Colin? I'm doing so well. Excited to be here. I love being a guest on a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so say we all. Uh, guys, Radioactive. Well, actually, maybe I'll, I'll back up a little. I'll start with comics. This is film is ostensibly based on the 2010 graphic novel Radioactive colon Marie and Pierre Curie, A Tale of Love and Fallout, which kind of has a double meaning when you think about it, uh, by Lauren Redness, which looks cool. It it looks like it's like a graphic biography, sort of. Like, it's not just like a traditional graphic novel sort of biography thing. Guys, Colin, uh, I assume you read this, correct? Believe it or not, I didn't. Uh, I did play Fallout New Vegas, though. Because <laughs> I saw that it had Fallout in the title, and I was like, I think that's what they ta- are talking about. And you watched Mission Impossible Fallout to prepare as well? Yes, yes, yes. And I played Fallout 4 also. <laughs> okay, okay. I know there's a few more I can use. <laughs> yeah, you watched the movie The Fallout, which came out this year. Um Colin, just be, since Emilio has already been on the podcast, we've talked a little bit about his his comics history. I do not know you to be a comic book fan. What is your experience, if any, with comic books, graphic novels, etc.? I've like lightly dabbled in various parts of my life. When I was a child, I was a huge fan of the grocery store aisle Archie's Double Digest. Mm-hmm. Would pick those mm-hmm. up often, uh, and then that pivoted to like. Um, actually even weirder when I was younger than that, when I was in like second grade, I was into, uh, graphic novels and like, I think I had like a spawn graphic novel and, mm. uh, cause they were big pictures 
Uh, they looked cool in my tiny child hands. Um, and then, uh, you know, I read like the sort of comic book du jour of the moment as they were happening. I would read like uh, okay. your Scott Pilgrim's, your, um, I was into Chris Ware and Daniel Klaus for a minute. Um, I know that's more, you know, dramatic turns. Um, <laughs> and then like. I, I had, like, a brief era where I was reading Saga, um, mm-hmm. just things like that. Things that were like, this is cool, get into this. Yeah, so you are sort of you were sort of, like, not plugged in per se, but when something sort of made the jump from the, the comics world to the mainstream. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. That's when you came in. Like, I, I, I would, if, like, a movie's coming out, I, I, when I was younger, I would often try and get the book before they get the tie-in cover on there. So I would do the same sure, for sure, comics, sure. <laughs> try and be ahead of the curve while still being behind the curve. Sure. Did you ever, did you ever read a uh, a movie novelization? Yes. Do you, do you mess with those at all? I did. When I was a child, I loved the novelization of the Sinbad DreamWorks movie. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you're uh, you're referring to the the, the animated pirate movie, yeah, 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 not yeah. a movie starring Sinbad. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the one where he's like taking over someone's house? House guest. Yeah, I read a novelization of Eddie Murphy Raw. And <laughs> <laughs> that was, but, and then, but your mom took it and blacked out on the yeah, Epslers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Emilio, yeah, it looked I like feel like classified we... documents by the end of it. Uh... <laughs> uh, it's it's interesting that also that you were reading Daniel Klaus and now you're more interested in Daniel Clout. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Avila, I feel like we talked about your uh, your comics experience on the podcast before, but you know, do, do anything anything more to add than what you said on the Private Eye episode? No. <laughs> All right, <laughs> perfect. Uh, what about uh, Amelia? Have you read Persepolis or any of Marjan Satrapi's work? No, I feel like in middle school we had like an English book like an English literature book that just had like a chapter dedicated to like graphic novel stuff. And I feel like there was a tiny section of Persepolis in there. And I read that tiny section, but the entire work I have not read. This chapter also had like stuff from like understanding comics and something else, maybe from mouse, I think was the other section was the other thing in that section. Wow. Really hitting the got the runs greatest hits. Although we've covered mouse, but we talk about it a lot weirdly. Or maybe not that weirdly. Um, what you about... talk about how it should be banned from Tennessee Public School. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're always trying to pull things out of libraries. Uh, what about any of her film work? Have you seen the Persepolis movie? I assume that you have not seen Chicken with Plums, uh, the film we discussed on last week's episode or anything like that. Here's a question for you, because, you know, I did consider us covering the voices until I found out that this movie was based on a graphic novel. And I'll come to you first, Emilio. The voices. Is this a good movie? Assu- you Do you assume, based on not having seen it? I'm going to assume no. I'll say about her directorial work is that I think a lot of it existed in a period of time where I wasn't really plugged into that kind of movie. It was the excuse I will give myself for not having really be familiar with it. Sure. I mean, I'm not super familiar with her directorial output either, like, until this uh, miniseries, obviously. She, so, since you guys may not be familiar, she co-directed animated adaptations of two of her graphic novel works, Persepolis and Chicken with Plums. 
Persepolis was animated, Chicken with Plums was live action, and then she does Gang of the the Jotas or Hotas, which is, it doesn't have a Wikipedia article, I was looking it up on IMDb, it seems relatively interesting, uh, and then she has the voices, the aforementioned Ryan Reynolds vehicle, black comedy, I assume he hears voices in his head from his dog or whatever. Anna Kendrick's in that too, right? Yeah, Jackie Weaver, great cast. Uh, and then yeah, we have this film. I feel like the the voices just it's like I feel like we the three of us have, we are friends. We have talked about especially Colin Apple Trailer Score. Yeah, for sure. Sort of movie <laughs> and the voices is for sure Apple Trailer Score. I take it a step further back which is like Persepolis and uh which I've not seen or read um but was aware of it for a while through this is a hyper specific HDTV when like high definition television was new they had a channel dedicated to like concert footage and they would run a program on there called nothing but trailers and the ultimate trailer show and Persepolis was a big feature in both of those and the voices kind of is later than my trailer obsessed uh, youth where like if you want to just (laughs) tangentially uh, related to Ryan Reynolds, the movie Chaos Theory is much more HDNet trailer core. <laughs> sure, I I don't know about any of that. I thought you were going to say you had an HD DVD for something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got the add-on for the Xbox 360. Yeah, I had that in um, King Kong. <laughs> also, when you said the voices, I thought you were going to talk about the voices in the English dub of Persepolis, where Sean Penn plays. Uh, Marjan Satrapi's father wow. and Iggy Pop plays her uncle. <laughs> I think I knew that because I remember that movie. They were like, "It's about her getting into rock and roll." <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a, an an element of it for sure. Uh, Persepolis for me is more me going into my local movie rental place and it was just playing on so- some employee was just watching it on, on some TV. That is more like that oh. kind of movie. But it's like a lot of movies like that. It's like a lot of movies that it took me like five years later to be like, oh, I guess that was what that movie was. Yeah, I guess that is a movie. Um, this is uh, an interesting sort of step in her career because so let's, let's talk about sort of the way this movie is positioned because I think we all agree. This is like and it approaches okay is maybe what I could generously say about it. I, I started to get more into it as it went along. I don't know what Emilio has said about it. Colin, I know you were not a, a fan of this film. No, yeah, I don't think it's very good. It approaches good as an interesting way to think about it because there are moments where I'm like, yeah, this is like something, but it is just so like for lack of a better word basic like it's just like walk hard sort of parody of itself (laughs) like uh you know woman in stem at the time like being like obviously you know not trying to minimize how difficult it must have been or how difficult it still is but just that it is hitting all of the tropes in such an uninteresting way but it's also trying so hard to do it in an interesting way that i think it fails basically on both counts and has like one of the worst performances i think i've ever seen and sam riley playing pierre curie (laughs) wow very very bold words we'll definitely come back to that but yeah it, it it is a very interesting movie because 
Emilio, it is. It seems to be positioned as an Oscar movie. Like that, I re- I remember hearing about it at the time as this is an Oscar play. This is a Best Actress play for Rosamund Pike, who was you know like pretty pretty hot at that time. It feels like I'm talking about her career to be clear. And then you know it's and it's. I feel like it sort of falls victim to trying to be what people expect that movie to be almost right no yeah for sure i mean it's definitely positioned that at an oscar play i mean i don't know i don't know how much into what me and colin's podcast is about we want to get but it came out at the toronto film festival which is usually reserved for well it plays a bunch of different movies but it is a big like oscar platform but that also means that there are just a bunch of movies that try to be oscar movies there that just end up incredibly floppy and this seems to be one of them but yeah i mean it definitely is off the backs of like theory of everything the imitation game Mm -hmm. just like these biopics about important people i guess i don't i guess i don't have enough of like an oscar memory to see if that extends that much to like female famous figures in that sort same sort of way maybe it is something that ends up being more reserved for male important figures and maybe there's something to look into there but yeah it's 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 like this is two years after darkest hour the winston churchill biopic and it's definitely trying to exist in those terms even though i think darkest hour is maybe a better more interesting movie than this well i'd say they're maybe like equally bad (laughs) darkest hour maybe just like without getting too deep into it just like also has a terrible performance at its center and like is Similarly to this, like, interestingly composed and, like, has, like, these expressionistic flair, but it ultimately leads to nothing. Um, I don't know where this falls in position with, like, On the Basis of Sex, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie, but that feels like a similar yeah, those are, thing. Yeah, that's a similar thing. Colette. Like Suffragette, yeah, Colette. Suffragette, like, yeah. Yeah, what I'm saying? It's like, it seems like the ones that are more towards female... these sorts of figures it it is they seem to all never like exist or (laughs) or really make that much of an impact yeah it's funny you mentioned on the basis of sex because i think we talked about mimi letter last episode weirdly um but yeah i mean like this year it's or you know this oscar year is zellweger renee zellweger wins for judy right yeah Yeah. and then you have cynthia revo nominated for playing harriet tubman yeah, so so it is definitely like in the air. But yes, let, let's talk about the the 2019 Toronto International Film Festival because it's it's a fun one. I mean, famously, Emilio and I had our first meeting, in person meeting at uh, this event. Colin, you could not make it; you were dearly missed. But just I'll just run I'll, th- I'll run through a few of the gala presentations for you because this it closed TIFF in 2019, which is also kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, some of the gala presentations, Abominable, The Aeronauts, yeah. the Aeronauts. Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. The Aeronauts is like a, a movie I think about in tandem with this movie a lot. I, I mean, say. written by the same guy. Jack Thorne wrote both. Oh, the, wow. Is this the bombshell? No, the bombshell. Do you want me to drop it now? Yeah, go I ahead and drop your this, Jack Thorne bombshell. I was like trying to see who was involved with this. And it seems like Jack Thorne just adapts anything. And like uh, Aeronauts is a different thing because i think tom harper also has a different writing credit than the jack thorne screenplay or script i never or which way it goes um but jack thorne just like adapts a lot of stuff 
He was like a writer on Skins back in the day. He uh, co-created some show that's on. I don't remember. But the the big thing that I saw, I was like, holy shit. And he uh, he created the Eddie, the Damien Chazelle Netflix show <laughs> that uh, Andre Holland <laughs> stars in. That is like one of the biggest unknown quantities of my lifetime, I think. In terms of what? In terms what of this is probably what? great, <laughs> but I'll never know because oh. I will never watch Netflix as the I, I, I'm blown away that this was your quote bombshell <laughs> that you're going to drop, especially because as you were talking, I clicked onto Jack Thorne's Wikipedia article and he wrote Harry Potter and the Cursed Right, yes, Child, he's a big theater guy also. Which is, yeah. which is also completely insane. I mean, he's just got his fingers um, in a lot of pots. Um there's some other TV show yeah. recently that he wrote, like, 22 episodes of. Uh, Shameless, he also wrote on, I guess. Sure. But yeah, it, it's interesting because, like, it's funny because, to me, this movie, Emilio, does sometimes feel like it's, like, a better movie that's sort of chafing under the weight of, like, a very, like, like you said, like, a very boilerplate biopic kind of script. Yeah. But I think I'm also, I'm sort of in agreement with Cullen in that the, I think the more interesting parts also don't work at all almost, and they they, all, they almost serve to make the movie less interesting by accident. I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's not unfair. But the the movie that this really reminded me of, I think you've seen it, Cullen, uh, is Tesla. Yes. The which is the following year with Ethan Hawke. I forget who directed Michael that. Michael Almoreda. But yeah, but in the way that, you know, obviously they're both about, like, major scientists, and then they both have this cross-cutting, I think that, you know, they both have that sort of cross-cutting between time periods, right? Yeah. And then, well, especially Tesla has, like, some more, like, outlandish, almost, like, wacky elements to it, which I feel like is in Marjane Satrapi's wheelhouse, because, you know, you guys are not as familiar with her work as I've become over the course of this miniseries, but, like, her sort of... She does have a, a flair for the fantastical, which we do see a little bit of here. And then she also does have this sort of wry sense of humor that I think would be, like, well-served in something like this. But then yeah. it just sort of ends up falling into this sort of, like I said, like, expected, basic, like you said. I feel like the problem with the movie, in, like, a very general term, is isn't that it's not attempting to be expressionistic. Like, maybe it could be more expressionistic. But I just think it's uncompelling. Like, I just feel like there's, there's like nothing interesting about the characters or the performances. There's like very little interiority. It just has no juice is what I thought when I watched it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's completely fair. I would say, um, let's, let's sort of dig into the more specific sort of plot mechanics of this movie because I think it might have been much better served by picking a lane because it tries to do the biopic thing of like, well, it starts, you know, when she's more or less like starting to become a scientist already. We get some flashbacks to her childhood. Well, it then, like, starts yeah, with her death. collapsing. Yeah. yeah. Sure. In in media res. But yes, and then we, we sort of see her, her beginnings of science, her partnership with Pierre Curie. They win the Nobel Prize, he dies, she has health problems because of her work with radioactivity, which I think most people, like, that's what people sort of know about Marie Curie. And then, but then weirdly, like, the second half of this movie, or like the last, like, 35 minutes, 
are about like her in World War One trying to get some X-ray machines. Yeah, which is just like a very abrupt left turn to me. Yeah, I mean, I, like you bringing up Tesla, I was thinking about it a lot as that is like doing the thing of bold choices. Like I feel like Almereda also he did um, Experimenter, which is the Stanley Milgram movie, and that has like a lot of his sort of. Uh, Tesla has it also where he, like, will, you know, break the fourth wall. He'll do things like that. Uh, and Tesla famously, there's a scene where, uh, one of the characters is, like, doing a PowerPoint with, like, a MacBook. And it, like, there is things like that that could sort of be cringy. But in that, I think it works tremendously. And I think, uh, as you're saying, like, she could have maybe done that. I don't know if she was under some sort of, like, restriction. Like, I don't know really the sort of process of making this like i imagine based on it just being a graphic novel and her being from that field it is something that she like felt compelled to make into a movie as she had been with her own work but it is like you're saying just incredibly dry and uh incredibly uncompelling and like you're that left turn at the end it's like we have just like little tiny pops of like this is i guess just a thing that happened to her and it's like okay so now we're spending a lot of time after pierre curie dies where it's her with uh the guy from the goldfinch i don't remember the real yeah. person's name in any sense i know him from as the guy from david copperfield uh... yeah he's also in <laughs> dunkirk he's like a french guy in a lot of stuff except he's a russian guy in uh dunkirk and uh goldfinch but he um she has, like, the relationship with him and is, like, branded as, like, uh, you know, a trollop or something. And, like, uh, <laughs> also it is, like, met with anti-Semitism and, like, anti-Polish sentiment uh, from everyone <laughs> uh, who knows her. And uh, that takes, like, a, a, a big chunk of the movie. And it's, like, this is something that is happening, but in the movie it feels like nothing is happening because every scene is so dry and like you'll have the little pop of like oh she's sleeping with like her little vial of you know uranium or whatever and it's like glowing next to her it's like i guess the, that actually happened who knows yeah this, yeah this movie like whenever it feels like it needs like a shot in the arm of like something interesting it is always just a glowing it is always just something starts glowing it's always just like a flash of just like light just like swirling around that it's i mean one of its only tricks when they go to the sort of dance show where the person loey fuller is like spinning and has the light glowing i was like we might have ourselves a movie here this is pretty cool <laughs> this is like dancing and lights i'm like interested and then you know black hole charisma sam riley <laughs> Starts whispering some bullshit. <laughs> were you well, were you happy when he got trampled by a horse? Uh, I mean, I, I had a hard time feeling any emotion about anything in the movie, but it was like that was a funny scene. I suppose it was a very abrupt thing where it's just like and like the way that it's filmed is pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think her directorial output is very hard to chart you know you sort of talked about like maybe she was interested because it's adapted from a graphic novel and i like i think that's possible but also like 
I'm not sure because her her work is like she has Persepolis and Chicken with Plums. This makes perfect sense. These are her books. Yeah. She's adapting them. And then like the voices, like that just does not track. Did at she all write for that, me. or is that? I don't think she did. No, she did. She. I don't think. I think you know. Obviously, for her own work, she has writing credit, but yeah. I don't think she wrote any of the any screenplays. Of her, a gang of the Jotas or Hotas. I'll just keep saying both. Mm-hmm. She did write. Okay. Um. But the vo- then, but then you have the voices in Radioactive, and it's like, how? What drew her to those movies? Yeah. Like, I'm just. I'm curious about what her. I mean, like, how artistic did... interest is as a director. I mean, my. I guess what I would wonder is how well did her movies do earlier, and and did she just become like a for hire person where she was just where somebody came to her and was like, "This is sort of based on a graphic novelist, Marie Curie. We think this would maybe be an Oscar play. We have a Roseman Pike here. Do you want? Like, are you interested in directing?" And she was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll do it." Yeah, and I mean, like. Her other movies are not big. Like, The Voices, that's, like, a $10 million movie. It doesn't make money. Yeah, I feel um, like that was, like, a direct to VOD at the time or something. Like, Yeah, like a limited release. And then Chicken with Plums is also, like, a $10 million movie that makes, like, $3 million. And so, like, it's true that she had not, like, made a lot of, like, super successful stuff. Like, obviously, Persepolis, like, that's a critical... In- I think a commercial success as well to some extent. Um, you know, it gets the Oscar nomination, things like that. So she does have some directorial juice in that regard. It's just interesting to me that like I think I think you're right that she has become a bit of a for hire person. And we talk about this a little on the last episode, sort of about like female filmmakers and how it can be difficult to get mm-hmm. things made, especially if like you don't have a hit movie, or even if you do have a hit movie, because that's why Mimi Letter came up, obviously, because she had deep impact and then like makes pay it forward and then doesn't make a theatrical release movie for like 20 years. Um, but yeah, I suppose, I guess this just, <laughs> there's something about this spoke to her. I mean, like there are obvious, like it was based on a graphic novel. It's about like a prominent woman. Yeah. Like there are reasons to be interested in this. It just su- kind of surprises me and it, it, it makes it difficult for me to sort of track what her interest is. Um, but let's talk about Rosamund Pike in this movie, because like I said, this was definitely positioned as an Oscar player at certainly at one time. Mm. It is an interesting performance and I think an interesting script, Colin, in how unsympathetic it it makes the care it allows Marie Curie to be in a lot of the time. Sure. I feel like it is a pretty noble performance on Pike's part, a Nobel performance, even. Um, but uh, hey, um, hey, I when I was like watching it, I am very unfamiliar with her as an actor outside of like the two big things that she's been in. Really, like I've not seen a Private War or like Beirut. Is that the one that she's in? Also, like I've seen Gone Girl, and I know she's in. Um, world's end also and i feel like that's it i know she's like also in a james bond movie but i'm not super familiar with her outside of like she's in those movies and then now she's like just a person who's like in these types of movies i would say of like she goes for oscar bait for lack of a better word a lot well colin you have to remember 
she won the Golden Globe last year, apparently. I'm now for learning. For what? For I Care for A Best lot. Actress in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy for I Care A Lot. Huh? Crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's insane. Yeah, I remember wow. vaguely hearing about that movie and some people. That was a classic, like, I think oh. it was a virtual TIFF movie that some people liked and some people didn't like. Yeah, Maybe I mean, even with was Sundance? Like, I, no, I can't be. I refuse. Uh, no, I do Toronto. Know. I was Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I do. I remember people were like, "Get ready," and then it like came out on Netflix, and it was one of those things where everyone was like, "No, <laughs> get this out of my face." Long. Yeah. Um, but then I also like, uh, it apparently, you know, just per the Wikipedia, um, was supposed to come out early 2020, and then when uh, COVID 19 happened, they just dumped it on Amazon Prime in the states, and I don't know where else in other territories, countries, what have you. Uh, but it is funny that it's like this movie just sort of falls between the cracks because like if it in another world, I guess where it gets a uh, big theatrical push, it could be like a sound of metal type thing, you know, plays at TIFF in 2019 and just steamrolls, but that also just get dumped on streaming. So who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think the movie might just be a little too, like flat yeah to really like i'm trying to imagine a world where she like gets a nomination for this and i don't really see it um, I, I just want to quickly touch on the golden globe for best actress motion picture comedy musical category uh in 2020 rosamund pike wins other nominees maria bakalova of course for yep. borat that, that's a, that's a lead performance right not supporting yeah, yeah. uh kate hudson for music sick <laughs> <laughs> michelle pfeiffer for french exit yeah uh, very bad movie. And Anya Taylor Joy, who is also in this movie, so very surprising. Which we should talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's a real that's a real jump scare when Anya Taylor Joy comes into the <laughs> movie for Emma. Yes, for Emma. Yeah, and like that's like that's an okay category. But then this year, it's is like it Rachel Zegler for? <laughs> sure, maybe I'm being generous here. And um, I guess I haven't seen Borat too, so I guess. But it's like. Two out of five is not great. <laughs> yeah, even I, I, even I, as a person who likes French exit, I'm, I'm like, I don't know if we need Pfeiffer in here. It's, it's just like, is that your third best performance in that category? Maybe it's like, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, two, two performances in Pike and Kate Hudson in music. I think most people would agree are actively bad. And then this year you have Rachel Zegler in West Side Story, Marion Cotillard in Annette. Alana Hyman, Licorice Pizza, Jennifer Lawrence in Don't Look Up, which I know some people like, and Emma Stone and Cruella. So, like, I mean, like, that's just all bangers. <laughs> yeah. This movie should have been, like, Cruella. Radioactive. It should have had needle drops at the wazoo. It should have fully leaned in. The, that's Well, the score is really I interesting. Do, yes. because the, that that's a good score. The I, that's that's what is, yeah. they, they also have done... Uh, they did another score recently, or did music for something recently. But yeah, I was I was pretty taken with the music. Um, very theremin heavy, you know, very like mm-hmm. bleepy bloopy like science music. <laughs> yeah, there were some good bleeps and blues. When the theremin came in, I was like, "This is a bridge too far." Wow, <laughs> like this is this is just like too obvious to let it be. That's good vibrations. Um. But yeah, so so where where do we want to start here? Do we want to talk about uh, Sam Riley as Pierre Curie, 
who... I mean, that performance, yeah. I don't hate it as much as Cullen. It's just nothing. It is just nothing. It is just like, uh, this person showed up and said their lines. Sure. Which is a problem, especially when the second half of the movie relies so much on, like, his ghost. Of just like, well, she's tortured by his death. And then his partner, who is the person that she ends up sleeping with, is also sort of tortured by that experience. And their collaboration is such a gigantic part of the argument this movie's trying to make about Marie Curie and like her successes and her failures. And you need that person to have a personality and they kind of don't. That is also sort of my, per- like I maybe like Rosamund Pike's performance is obviously better than his, but hers, I still have a problem with of, of that. Like she, she's sort of just playing like an energy and sort of a vibe. And yeah. I think for a movie like this, you do need to get inside that person's head because if yeah. not then like what are you even doing here what is the value of this movie if you're not at least trying to have a dialogue with how a real person Marie Curie might have thought or felt or had idiosyncratic thoughts at this at these sorts of time yeah it's like we all know that this is like a legendary status type person so I don't need to do any work to like make you be on her side or whatever like or make you even like sympathize with anything it's like yeah, I'm playing, you know, friggin' ex-famous person, and it's like, oh, I know who that is. I don't need to, like, have a take. <laughs> Whereas, like, if there was something deeper going on of, like, you know, playing something other than just, like, bog-standard emotion. <laughs> yeah, but that that sort of gets back to what I was saying earlier, is that I do think that the movie allows her to be like an unsympathetic character in some interesting ways because like I, f- I do feel like normally in a a biopic like this you would like just always by default be on her side because like of course I mean like obviously she faced a lot of sexism which I have no doubt is rooted in historical fact um, even though she talks about how you know lack of funding and all that but what it is interesting to me that it's like she it's not like the the main character is obstinate because they are right and then eventually they are proven right and like that is a big triumph for them it is like this character is obstinate and they are like getting in their own way and they are like jaded and bitter like before their time and it's just like sad to see and like it she just i think especially in the later stages of the movie when she like has sort of become fully embittered I think it's like I think it's interesting in terms of how like unsympathetic and just like at, at times cruel, but it's like it's more of like you know the the cruelty that's borne out by just like being ground down over a lifetime, which I think is like that's something interesting in a biopic that we might not see. Sure, I might push back a little bit just because it's like that is maybe what they're going for. But then also the rest of the movie is bolstered by people, like, literally saying, like, you're the best woman I've ever known. And, like, things that do hit this sort of standard biopic uh shots to where it's, like, yeah, like, there's a bit of, like, you know, just get out of your own way, like you're saying. But then also it's, like, I don't really get any shift, uh in performance like at all from pike basically like the scene where they're at the seance or whatever and 
she's sort of just like making jokes about it and like not really buying again it's like yeah this is uh you know showing her sort of like you're saying like steely and like bitter side and uh like as a result of like losing her mother so early but then it is just like there's nothing gained from it i think like any sort of attempt that the movie has it's it's much like the stylization or the expressionistic like flourishes any sort of it's like always a one step forward two steps back type thing where it's like everything that is leaning towards an interesting movie is like whack-a-mole down by the boring rest of the movie yeah i think anything what i I would describe that as is everything that is interesting or maybe compelling about the movie well no everything that could be interesting about the movie is mired down by the fact that it's not compelling it's it's just like if everything exists in concept or in theory i agree that those could be interesting things to the back but when i'm watching it i'm just like not getting much from it yeah but i i do feel like some of that does come back to the script like i was saying because like i think and I think also this is something we talked about with Persepolis as well as a work of adaptation. Uh, that, like, in that movie, it feels like you're sacrificing, like, the emotional texture of the movie in order to, like, hit these, like, beats, right? Because it's like, it's when they were adapting Persepolis, I think I said on that episode, it's as if they were like, well, we have to have these, like, 15 scenes. And so we'll just, like, do each one of these scenes in order and then like you kind of lose the the wholeness of sure, it yeah and that's what it does feel like at times here because like they're like okay we have to get her beating pierre curie we have to get them working together we have to get the nobel prize yeah. we have to get this weird scandal that she was involved in with like xenophobic anti-polish sentiment yeah. and then we have to get to this hospital th- or the world war one yeah, thing she does at, like tw- closer to the end of her life what's the guy's name frederick uh He's like the guy that Anya Taylor Joy marries. Uh, yes, and they, Frederick Joliot Curie. Exactly. They um, like just it's like you're saying, just like we have to get to this and then to that. It's yeah, and the ending in particular, I think, is a problem because I do think another thing that it that might be interesting, which is in the vein of what you were talking about, all of the scenes that depict the consequences of radioactivity, and I did think for a while, well, it is interesting that this movie almost makes a case for like her discovery while we a giant breakthrough and important for her as a woman important for women in science maybe it wasn't like the most positive thing to ever come to the world scientifically but then at the end i feel like it just sort of like backs down from that and it's just like well you're just gonna do science what can you do really and the end cards also it like negates all of the sort of impact that could have been put on the film by like the you know they show like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and like uh Chernobyl and it's like but then at the end they're like and actually everything she did was really cool and good and like gave us all the, like saved so many lives during World War One and it's like both of those things I think don't work in the movie but then they also somehow work against each other and it's like I you can't have it both ways but also those scenes where they're showing the sort of like intercut effects of you know uh her discovery i found incredibly tedious and like some of them are are so long and i'm like we do not need this like yeah 
The after the the extended sequence where the child is receiving radiotherapy yeah. in in like I was so confused it's, by what was happening and yeah. when it's so crazy. Yeah, and it, it is again like the most like, well, we have this new machine like, by radioactivity, and it can help your child. It's like. It's like if you wanted to show a movie about Marie Curie in your like high school, but you also didn't want to give a like a cl- you didn't want to give class to like contextualize all of it, so the movie just contextualizes it for you. It is like two a uh, two hour. It's like two classes worth of just like we're just gonna show this movie and it's gonna teach the kids everything they know they need to know about radioactivity and who invented it, and then I have to do no more no further work. After yeah, this. yeah, and I think you know I think that. Those, I think there are four of them overall. I think it sort of totally depends on, like, whether or not we have, like, a character to latch onto. Because, like, the bomb test in in Nevada, like, when they're doing, like, the atomic testing in the desert, like, the classic Nuketown-type yeah. beat, Call of Duty. Indiana Jones. Um, Indiana Jones 4, yeah. Uh, like, that, that is just, like, this is nothing. Yeah. Like, we've seen this before. Like, we've seen the whole, like, atomic test thing with the yeah, fake family. Face but then, like, the, the Hiroshima part, like, we have seen Hiroshima before. Like, we've seen the atomic bomb going off and things like that. But I, I really liked the moment of, like, the you have, like, the Japanese man just, like, looking yeah. up and then, like, being, like, scorched. And then... We, when we revisit, I thought that was an effective moment when, like, towards the end, it's one of the more stylized pieces of the movie. When she, like, walks into the hospital and in the hospital beds, she's seeing, like, these different figures from her life. And then she sees that man. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. Like, and and in Chernobyl as well, where you have the focus on, like, the one guy who is, like, going in to deal with Chernobyl, I guess. Um, like, that, that I thought was, like, pretty affecting. And so I feel like when it's given the chance to like at least pin the you know the scenes on a person and on like a certain level of emotionality it can be more effective yeah i think the moments between those two scenes specifically are the moments in the movie where i was like there's maybe something interesting that those moments i was like is this maybe like an anti-girl boss movie like is this movie fully going to go like well, this person was very important, and she did a lot of important things. But also, this whole thing might have been fucked, and maybe she was all, maybe she was also like a little in her way. But then again, the ending undermines it, and it's not that interesting. Like apart from like that idea that I had, I don't think it's that interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I certainly think that like I I get what you're saying about the end title card sort of undoing some of that, and I think Satra P kind of exists in an interesting space inter- as like a a female artist of a feminist creator because so much of her early work like so much of persepolis and embroideries especially one of her other graphic novels is about like women in iran and like the societal experience and like societal expectations and how they respond to them so you'd think that a movie about a woman in a society that kind of resents her and sort of having like mixed because like it is not a look how hard it is for women exactly like it is just like a it presents things as they are i'm talking about embroideries and persepolis like it presents the reality there you know there are good things that you can experience as a woman in a society that is like oppressive towards women there are bad things you can experience obviously and she tends to give like a very even keeled and like honest expression of that and then in this it it just 
I think ultimately ends up becoming like she's trying to be shut out because she is a woman as exemplified by that one professor guy who just hates her for pretty much no reason. He's the minister of war um, or of science. What's the difference? (laughs) (laughs) Why did you do like, okay, science and you're doing that as if you were meditating? (laughs) Because I just peaked. (laughs) (laughs) Call it just reach nirvana. Yeah, sure. What did, what did you guys think about the the sort of like I said, the last thirty five minutes or so, where it primarily focuses on yeah you know, the way she puts it when she's sort of arguing her case to the government is like this is her last fight. She knows she's dying. Like you know, she won't be around forever. So she is like choosing to put her energy behind this thing that her daughter, who has now aged into Anya Taylor Joy like wants to fight for which is having x-rays on the battlefield so that they don't have to do like unnecessary amputations did you got was that like did that work for you guys did that seem like an abrupt left turn as i was sort of talking about earlier i mean it's just one of the like it's the sort of thing of this movie where it's just like i have to just take it on face value like okay this is just another thing that happened and i will see it happen like i especially at the near the end had a hard time feeling anything for like the sort of characterization of events and also the movie as a whole just like it's not a thing where it could like do any i guess it could have gone very far off and like taking like an even wilder left turn and done something crazy that would have shifted my opinion of it but at that point it was basically just uh, it had plateaued and it did not peak or valley <laughs> another time throughout the end. Yeah, and it, I think it's also indicative of the movie's problems. I think one of its biggest problems is with the script, and I think no dialogue is there for the sake of just of like emotionality or character. Every dialogue is be, is a person being like, "This is who I am, and this is who I feel, what I feel, and this is what's gonna happen next, and this is what we're gonna do, and now we're gonna go on to the next thing." Like, this movie hates existing in stillness in a way that I feel like it needs to for you to get any sense of the characters. Every single scene and every single piece of dialogue and every moment just exists as, like, to document what is happening in the moment and then to set up what is gonna going to happen next. Like, everybody says how yeah. they feel. No, like, you don't get any personal sentiment from anybody. And I think it, that is, like... That is why even the guy playing, I forget what is her husband's name. First Pierre name. Curie. Pierre. Pierre Curie. Pierre that, Curie. That is that is why I, I even don't want to even blame that guy much because it's like I don't know what you do with that material. I don't know like if you have to be that character. I don't even know what you fuck- like if everything you say is like oh well I am a good scientist and I am here to help you and this is why how our relationship will be. Then I, it's yeah. just like, no, that's like nothing. That guy's nothing. Like, truly, f- from the time they meet until the time he dies, the relationship is exactly the same. I never am like, oh, they've fallen in love now. It's like, they've just hung out this whole movie. And I guess, and I get that it's it's maybe trying to make a point of just like, these are scientists. These are like cold people. Maybe they're not like the most like flourishy, like we're going to be, emo- we're going to be outwardly emotionally people. But then that's just like, that that's not very fun to watch i don't know what to say <laughs> yeah and i think that 
Yeah, it's weird because in another like there's another movie, another version of this where the movie is about like the two of them, like the Curies, and it chooses not to be that, and like probably for the best because like the stuff where it focuses on their relationship is definitely the weakest. I would agree, and I think like you've been saying, you know, like it gets back to that lack of interiority, like the whole full like fight scene where like she is mad that he like seems to be taking credit for her work uh during the whole nobel prize business like that is a real like you start to check out real quick scene because it's just like and i think that like this is a tone that extends to a lot of the movie where it's just like this is just like unpleasant it's not smart and it's not like painful like it's not like making me cry it's just like I'm watching two people, I'm watching, like, a couple that I don't know have an argument, and it's just, like, I wish they would just stop. But it's also, like, I'm watching a couple that I don't know read a Wikipedia article. (laughs) Like, I'm not even, like, oh, they're arguing. It's just, like, they are talking to each other, like, they're, like, how's your Wordle score or whatever, (laughs) like, very basic conversation that apparently is monumental to them. (laughs) Yeah, if well, it, it was the Nobel Prize. Sure, but still, like the the movie truly like you are saying these scenes, and I'm like, oh, I guess that is what that scene was. But in my head, when I watch it, I'm like, this just happened in front of me. Like, I did not see anyone be like, yes, I won. Like when she was like, I will melt down my two prizes. I was like, when did she win anything? Yeah, you don't remember the scene where she receives a letter and then says, "They've given me another Nobel Prize." <laughs> no. <laughs> Because that is that is like a pivotal scene, yeah. <laughs> Where she's just like, I guess I win another Nobel Prize. Yeah. Boring. This is just a D- Disney Hall of Presidents ass movie. Yeah, yeah. Right. Truly. <laughs> uh, it is also like, without being like a weirdo, I do think there is a lot of uh, uh, emotional stake in World War One specifically. Like, I feel like I don't know if either of you played that video game. I want to say it was called like valiant hearts or something i know what game you're talking about yeah it was a world war one like history game where you you play as like a side scroller well you play as like four different characters all experiencing different parts of world war one but then it's also like here is like this article like that has this information like within the game and it's like this touches on similar ground and how it's presenting history along with uh, stylization and but it just falls so flat and I think that like scene as you're saying this sort of left turn to Anya Taylor-Joy being like here's this guy's name and he lost his legs here's this guy's name and he has no limbs and she's like okay I get it I know she's uh, like it's, she's like you don't need you don't need to show them to me like this was a museum and I'm like that's what yeah. this entire movie is <laughs> yeah but that is like I feel like that game in particular like the perfect movie that this is is if like Tesla and that game were together. It is this movie. I mean, and also to be fair, like in my vague reading of what the graphic novel is like, is that it is much more like written and like it's sort of sure, booky, yeah. and then it has sort of like portraiture and sorts of pictures, and so it is much more of like a hybrid history artistic interpretation thing and this just decides to be a biopic yeah i mean like i think what you're getting at colin is like there is like some inherent pathos in exactly. world war one just because like it's like so gross yeah, truly. you know like I, I i doubt you guys are familiar with this but 
there's this movie, a Canadian movie called Passchendaele, which came out like 10 or 15 years ago, which is about like one of like history's grossest battles where it was just like these giant fields of like mud where like it had been like, like the rain had come and like turned it all into mud and they could like barely like walk around because they were just like drowning in mud. And it's just like, oh, this is like one of the most horrific things like anyone has ever experienced. Yeah. And so like, I feel like that like you can it's easy to make a good movie out of that especially when it's like i think that is when her sort of pathos starts to come through uh curie like the character is like she has this like deep jaded and embitteredness that has like taken root within her for like 30 years and also like you have the parallel of like the sickness that has taken root with her over 30 Mm -hmm. years where it's like the sickness is like a physical manifestation of the ways that like her fixation on her science has like har- harmed her life. And so it's like, there is like some strong stuff there. And then like, she sort of has to like overcome that to, cause it's like in service of helping people. Mm-hmm. But, and so I think like, that's the movie. Yeah. yeah. No, but I think also it, it just by virtue of how quickly it moves, it, it, it also doesn't give enough time to the science, I think, or at least like her, be mm-hmm. interested in it it's just like it has just has scenes it's just like every other scene is her being like i'm really into science and it's the most important part of my life and you see like uh, one and a half scene of her measuring stuff but you never get that thing of just like what excites her about this or what she thinks is like that interesting or important about all this it is just we know marie curie was an incredibly famous scientist so it is all like I think the movie almost thinks it's useless to show you why she is into science, but it's like why do I care about this? Like, like why, why do thing. I have to hold on to? Yeah, yeah. Back to the thing of like Pike's performance of just like you all know who she is. Like we don't need to give you mm-hmm. very much. Like uh, the the yeah. thing of like you saying uh, like she's shown the sort of brutality of war and it's like what convinces like what melts her heart basically to convince her to use uh let Anya Taylor Joy use you know to make the x-rays the movie is shot by Anthony Don Mantle I think mostly it's pretty handsome and especially when it is going for a more bold choices although there's one like one of her pregnancy scenes there's like this crazy sort of fisheye blown out shot of uh, like a syringe and like someone reaches to grab it and puts it like, and that is sort of, I think distracting, but I feel like the movie as it is in that section of the war and the Anya Taylor Joseph, it is so gray and flat. And like, like you're saying, like the muddiness of world war one specifically, like, it can feel gritty and like it can feel you can get something that way. Well, that's more, that's more orange. Sure. Yeah. Gritty yeah. More orange. The it'd be more furry and like wearing a flyers Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, like it could be like, there could be something there as well. Like, mm. as we're saying, there's like not much emotion in the script and the performances, like even in the way it looks, it is so, standard and like even with its flourishes it feels so especially that scene i was like this looks like so cheap like a tv show like their you know bandages and everything it's so like it's it's all too clean and like 
barely even looks like they are outside. Like it's, I was really like, because I know Anthony Dunmantle, he's like Vinterberg's guy. He's shot a lot of yeah. I was gonna early Boyle. I did have some things. Yeah, I I did have some things to say about the cinematography because like I didn't even realize that this was the guy who shot like. He's worked with Danny Boyle a bunch. He shot 28 Days Later, one of the worst looking movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Only the, not his fault, the camera's fault. Uh, like he worked with Lars von Trier a bunch. Yeah. He like worked with Ron Howard a few years ago. And it's interesting yeah, he did because like that, that streak of like Rush and Hard. I mean, he did Julian Donkey. He yeah. was like, you know, he, so he was like a, a dog, a, a dog, DVD yeah, guy. a mini DV dogma guy. Yeah. Um, you know, he shot Snowden. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's it's interesting because I thought it looked a lot like Chicken with Plums, which I know you guys haven't seen, but, like, it has this sort of, like, gauzy unreality hmm. to it. Because, yeah. like, and, and I think that works with Chicken with Plums because that movie is sort of, like, a fable or, like, a fairy tale almost. And so I think that that at times is what she's going for, is that, like, ma- almost magical realism, like... A sense of unreality like you're not like watching something happen like it's not just presented in like a very like out and out flat way but i feel like that can sort of come and go especially because like there's not that much interesting to shoot it's just like there's some alleyways and some labs and then yeah. a gray battlefield yeah yeah and i mean anthony don mantle shot dread and rush dread is maybe dread is maybe like what this movie is trying to look like that's like the good way maybe where it's like sort of gauzy and neon and then Rush's movie I have I think I have the similar problem to this where it all just looks plasticky and super fucking fake so I don't know I, I'm it's just when it gets to the light stuff it becomes interesting but then by the like 11th time it plays that one trick it has it, it even then I'm just like rolling my eyes at it yeah I mean, is there anything else we want to say? I there, the one scene where she goes to like the medium that her husband went to and is begging her to like conjure up her husband. I like that I'm not someone who usually like comes out of a movie and is like this is fake. These are like people on a set who are acting, but her like sobbing really did that to me. Yeah, I mean, there is like a sort of cheapy tv quality to all of it yeah. yeah at the end of the day um also that this movie i think like got some flack for being like weirdly inaccurate in some ways as much fla- as much attention as this movie could have gotten which was almost nothing but i do think it does like it does do some like dramatic condensing of events like uh, like it she, she wasn't sure. pregnant at the time that her husband got the Nobel prize for the first time which is like the one moment this movie like mines for a lot of drama, and as we mentioned earlier, it just sort of f- falls flat. But it it it, it just, it's only interesting to me because it's like she if she's already taking the steps to like condense and like change stuff up for the sake of making it dramatic and interesting. I feel like a lot more of that should have happened then. Like it, like yeah. it, it, the only way this sort of movie and its approach is kind of like justifiable to me is if like you're staying extremely accurate to history and you want it to exist as some sort of document but yeah once you start taking some level of license then just take more license to make the movie good yeah it's like we keep mentioning tesla throughout it is such a this is what that movie is trying to do i think and it does it uh so much better and i think this movie should have just committed to being 
kooky and have much like in Tesla, spoiler alert, where Ethan Hawke does karaoke and sings Tears for Fears, Rosamund Pike should have sang Imagine Dragons Radioactive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's either that or you make the like very low-key dramatic interior movie that is just like one of the like five acts this movie has. Yes. I yeah. think I think taking like you said, taking one piece of the movie and blowing it out probably makes for a better movie like pretty pretty universally yeah I'd like say. Po- like if you made like the post her husband's death like that affair movie that might be an yeah. interesting movie if you like really drill down into how that made her feel and like why this was sort of controversial at the time and all of the things that she's dealing with and trying to be like an important science but also like a woman who's having this weird affair i guess she's not the one having the affair i guess he's the one having the affair technically and just like all of the historical implications of that and all the societal implications of that stuff but instead that's just like two weird scenes that don't end up amounting to much yeah make it steamy make it sexy yeah but but yeah i was gonna say like i do think that like you said like i think it the feeling like it's chafing is maybe a result of this being like a bit of a work for hire for her and her sort of being pushed to make it more like mainstream palatable and more yeah. Oscar baby because I think her instinct would be, uh, you know, like I, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt almost. Like, yeah. I think her instinct would be to push it in a weirder direction that maybe they like tried to course correct her back towards and like make it more of like a, a, a King's speech or whatever. Yeah. I would be curious to hear what her thoughts on the movie are. If she's like, I made this and I'm very happy with it. And I think it's great. And it's what I would, wanted to do and i love the script that i'm like have fun <laughs> but if she's like they like were breathing down my neck and wouldn't let me do anything cool then i'm like i trust you and i will watch whatever you get to make on your own terms sure because i mean there's like not nothing there are some bones like but it is just you know pretty rough stuff yeah it's like if i if like there's bones and skin and there's no meat <laughs> that is that is what sure, this movie yeah. is sure Sure, sure, sure. Um, I think we all agree then that Joker should have closed Tiff instead of this, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's probably as good as Joker in my mind. Um, with Joker maybe being more interesting. I mean, <laughs> I think I, I mean I think unequivocally Joker is a more interesting movie. I, I might sure, think yeah. it's also a better movie, but uh... that's t- I think it's a. I don't know. I don't want to keep any praise on Joker. Although, we, this is a comics podcast, so maybe we should talk about Joker. Do they you do a Joker comic it, right? book? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you mean, like, did they do a comic adaptation of the movie Joker? Or did they just, make any comic featuring the character of Joker? <laughs> I only knew him as the guy from yeah. that one movie. Well, have you seen the you haven't seen The Dark Knight, bro? What's the Dark Knight? Oh, honey, I'm gonna have to educate you after this podcast. We do not have time. Y'all need help. I do love Batman though. I just don't know what the Dark Knight is. Yeah. <laughs> you love Batman the TV show. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I feel like that's all that needs to be said about Radioactive. I mean, we like to do awards talk here. We talked a little bit about the Golden Globe, Best Actress this year. Zellweger wins, as we mentioned. Cynthia Revo. Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, Saoirse Ronan in Little Women, Charlize Theron in Bombshell. I have not seen Harriet, but from what I understand, that is what we 
are sort of talking about that we want. I feel like the reason people didn't like that movie, as far as I know, is that it took too many liberties and went too goofy. And Cassie Lemons, I feel like, is a director who uh, has only made movies that I think seem very interesting. Uh, and that one in particular, I'm like, uh, that might be giving us like, here is historical figure that we all know, but here is, you know, like an interesting movie about that, not just your standard biopic. So that is an interesting nominee because especially people like were not hot on that movie at all. So it is uh, fun to think that she get it. Did she get into the Oscars also? Yes, that was that was oh that the, was the Oscar uh, best actress okay. slate. Yeah, yeah. Harriet it did win the AARP's Movies for Grownups Best Time Capsule Award. That's fun. <laughs> Joe Alwyn's in that movie, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, Judy is just, like, Judy Garland's a famous Hollywood person, so we're going to accept give that. Yeah, movie. that's the... the and there's, like, I, I guess that, that yes. movie also had the benefit of uh, Zellweger doing a very, like, a very out-there impression. Whereas this movie, Rosamund Pike is just, like, I am a tough scientist lady, and I will not be- bend down to any... Like, I guess I have no idea what Marie Curie actually sounded like or what her actual personality is. But I get if like watching this movie, I feel like I have less of an idea rather than more of it. I feel like if they didn't gray her, gray her hair and like make her look older, the performance is the exact same throughout the entire movie, which I was like, that's crazy. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it, it also, I do think that there is, it is inherently more cinematic to make a movie about Harriet Tubman than it is to make a movie about Marie Curie, maybe. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm just looking here. Do you know that the AARP in 1999 did the 50 sexiest stars over 50? Wow. They had, wow. Who's number one? Uh, I don't think there was a ranking. Oh, I'm so reading, alphabetical? I'm reading a clipping from Jet Magazine. Okay. Um, <laughs> but some, some choices. Pam Greer, Tina Turner... Quincy Jones, yeah. Harry Belafonte, Felicia Rashad, opera star Kathleen Battle, not familiar. Uh, Sydney oh, Poitier, so hot. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Battle, yeah. Sydney oh Poitier. I mean, he he got the vintage sexy award. So, cheers That's to him. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, very crazy that the AARP did a sexiest stars award. Very funny that Jet Magazine was reporting on it also. Well, yeah, it was talking about all the all the yeah, black yeah. stars who, you know, you know. Uh, but I imagine that will do it. Colin and Emilio, thank you so much for joining us. The podcast is Can I Kick It? What a, a terrific podcast. Some some great guests on there. We should be following your example uh, and getting great guests like this episode has. Uh, Colin, where can we find you on Twitter? And do you have anything else that you want to plug, like a podcast, for example? Uh, yeah, I'm Clatchley on everything, C-L-A-T-C-H-L-E-Y. Follow me on Letterboxd, because I've been, uh, I'm throwing some heat. And I guess, if you want me to plug a podcast, Bevy of Bevy's out soon or out now? Yes, Bevy of Bevy's, the podcast about consumable liquid, hosted by Colin and myself, uh, is either out or forthcoming. Amila, you're pissed about that, right? That we started that? You should cover piss on the podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't think it hasn't been pitched, buddy. Um, a pitch, a pitch yeah, Bevy Bevy's is so good. <laughs> it's so much fun to do as someone who does their own podcast that takes a long time in terms of prep and post. 
and during <laughs> this being a 20 minute podcast where everything happens on mic except for the edit is like a dream and i love drinking liquids and talking about them and you know i'm there as well but i guess that's yeah! not as big of a thing to you come on uh, <laughs> emilio where can people find you on twitter do you have anything else you would like to plug for us uh you can find me on twitter at i'm laugh alone and you can follow me on letterboxd also at i laugh alone uh you should listen to the private eye episode of this podcast again i guess Mm -hmm. yeah. Amelia comes up with a fake podcast with a fourth friend of ours <laughs> and actually I'm doing this with my friend where we talk about cheese I'm, I'm doing plates of peas with Daniel Foster <laughs> vegetable chat I like my assumed madness uh, like madness I have not communicated at all <laughs> well it's more of a silence doing yeah. um, I, I think we can all collectively plug uh, the new Denzel Curry album that will probably be out by the time that this is out. You both described Walkin' as a, a 10 out of 10 record. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so plug... 10,000 times. Also. <laughs> so plugs out for that, so to speak. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jan. You can follow us on Twitter at GotTheRunsPod or email us uh, at gottherunspod at gmail.com. Do you plug? David will be back. Maybe what, I'll ask afterwards. I guess I... No, no, go ahead. Do you plug your other work on here? Like my other podcast? Yeah. Well, I mean, people know that you can listen to High Floor, Low Ceiling with myself and Griffin Porter, which I know you're a big fan of, Amelia. Listen to every week somehow. <laughs> well, follow HFLC Podcast on Twitter as well while you're at it. Um... But I think that's going to do it for this episode. David will be back with myself next week to talk about uh, Lost at Sea, the beginning of our Brian Leo Malley miniseries. That will be exciting. Um, but until next time, do you guys know uh, what the outro of this podcast is? I do. We all, we all simultaneously say, to be continued. Okay. So, so thank you all for listening. And until next time... To be, to be, to be continued. <laughs> and it works seamlessly like that every time. <laughs> sip, sip. I was going to say it, but I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stopping my record. <laughs> <laughs>